Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your bi-weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. Tonight I have a great case for you. It's from Tennessee, a case that you probably have heard of but may not know the details behind. I am talking about the Bell Witch from Adam Tennessee, a case that has inspired movies, literature, a play, so on and so forth, and probably the most famous being the Blair Witch Project. So if you've seen the Blair Witch Project, it is based on the Bell Witch from Tennessee. From is that a good <laughs> is that a good Southern accent? It's from Adams, Tennessee. You know, I may be Southern adjacent, but Tennessee and Southern accents is not it for me. For me. But, you know, I like Nashville. We're not going to waste any time today. We're going to jump right into this case because there's a lot to get to. And it's all very exciting. So... Here we go. It's the summer of 1817 in Adams, Tennessee, about 40 miles north of Nashville. Today, Adams, Tennessee has a population of 671. 671. I think I walk by more people going to work every day in New York City than the population of Adams, Tennessee has. I graduated high school with a higher graduating class. 671 people. It's crazy. I truly could never fathom being or living in a town that small. I also wouldn't want to live in a town that small. If you do, good. But I don't like the idea of everybody knowing my business all the time. I like the idea of walking by 671 people and not knowing a single one of them. I love that. And then getting to the destination where I am supposed to be going and knowing like five people. I love that. I can't tell you exactly why, but yeah, the middle of nowhere, not for me. Love to visit the mountains, love to visit Tennessee, living there, not for me. But go off. It's beautiful. I mean, I haven't been to Adams, Tennessee, but Tennessee in general is beautiful. 671. It's wild to me. Okay. Sorry. We're moving on. And so that's today's population. So in 1817, I can only imagine that there were like 20 people living in that area. It wasn't called Adams, Tennessee back in 1817, but 20 people. I would bet money. Eight of them were probably the Bell family. There was John Sr. He was a successful farmer, and he was married to a woman named Lucy. They got married in 1782, and he was 32 years old, and she was 12 years old when they got married. I was honestly really gagged reading that 
doing a lot of research that's historical crime, you do come across it semi-regularly. So I shouldn't be surprised, honestly, but it was kind of shocking. 32 and 12. Today, I barely want to date somebody 20 years older than me. I'm legally not allowed to date someone 20 years younger than me. But besides that, you don't have anything in common. What are you talking about? What is this 32-year-old man and this 12-year-old talking about? In the early 1800s, probably nothing. But 20 years difference. I got to talk about it here because I'm going to move on from this and we're not going to talk about it again. So I have to get it out of the way now. But yeah, that is wild. Wild. Imagine being 20 years old when your future wife is born. No. No. That's not okay. Okay. They were the best farmers in North Carolina at the time. They ate everybody up. They left no crumbs. They were the best farmers. And their first child, Jesse, was born before they bought a larger piece of land and moved to Tennessee in a town called Red River, now known as Adams. Or like part of Adams was Red River. So after moving to Tennessee with Jesse in tow, Lucy gave birth to five more children, Betsy, Richard, John Jr., Drury, and Benjamin. Now, I talk a lot about names on this podcast. These aren't bad names. Betsy, Richard, Benjamin, kind of classic. Drury, D-R-E-W-R-Y. Don't know where they got that, but, you know, I'm not mad at it. I like the uniqueness. And then you're just going to toss in a John Jr., You got decent names throughout. We already have a John. Why are we doing another John? You did so well until that point. And then in Tennessee, again, John Sr. had a very successful farming career. He's an A-plus farmer. Financially successful because he had enslaved people doing all the work. And he didn't pay them. So, you know, he was financially successful. And I say all the work. They were doing most of the work. I'm sure John Sr. did some of the work. But, you know, Lucy and the kids were... The kids were really young at this point. So, you know, Lucy and the kids were in the house. Anyway, the summer of 1817 is when shit gets weird. It all started with seeing unusual animals roaming about the property. The family and the enslaved workers on the farm reported seeing canine-type creatures, but the creatures would act strangely. Some creatures were unidentifiable. John Sr. first encountered a black dog on his property, but when he got closer, he realized the dog's head was that of a rabbit that had glowing red eyes. Now, We're going to pause there. Canine-like creatures. 
in Tennessee. Wolves. Okay, I don't even know if wolves or coyotes live in Tennessee, but in the United States, wolves, coyotes, foxes, domesticated dogs. That's all I got. If we're talking like large animals, then we can toss in some big cats, mountain lions. Again, I don't know the creatures that lived in Tennessee in the 1800s, but you know, mountain lions. Other than that, the next largest thing I can think of is like, what, a beaver? A fat rabbit? A mole? A skunk? These aren't anything that's going to line up for with what he's talking about. So I can only imagine he's talking about a wolf. Because wolves, wolves are big. If you've never seen a wolf up close or in person, they're huge. Coyotes, on the other hand, think like domesticated dog size. Wolves, they can be scary looking. So if he, if he sees a black wolf and you know, roam the grounds, that's creepy. That's scary. I get that. But then you're going to walk up and it's... <laughs> I just imagine that John walks up behind the wolf and tries to scare it away or something and the wolf turns its head to look back at John and it's just the head of a rabbit. <laughs> it's so silly. It's so silly. When I was walking through a forest preserve once, I approached in the middle of the path. It was like really tall grass on either side and it was a gravel path. And in the middle of the path, probably like five, 10 feet in front of me was this small, what looked like a black cotton ball, the size of a cotton ball, the fluffiness of a cotton ball, but it was black, circular, spherical. I had no idea what it was. And I slowed down. I got, I took little steps closer because I was so confused. And then when I was almost, I think my shadow probably cast on top of it, this tiny little field mouse face turned back to look at me and then scurried off. When I tell you it was the cutest looking mouse I've ever seen in my entire life. And yes, I'm biased. I lived in Chicago, New York, two cities that are rampant with rats and mice. But this little field mouse that looked like a black little cotton ball, it was so cute. It was so cute. So here I just kind of imagine that same thing. We got a big black dog turn around, but rabbit ears and glowing red eyes. And again, I've talked about glowing red eyes before. I think like Ty and I talked about it on the spring till Jack moment. When you have like, especially animals at night and you shine something in front of them, they kind of glow. They're like glassy. So if John Sr. walks up with like a candle or, you know, a torch and you catch the eyes of the animal, they, they're going to look like they glow. This is me trying to rationalize everything. This could very well just have been a black dog with a rabbit head and red glowing eyes. It could have been. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's wild. And that would be, regardless, it would be creepy to see at night. One of the enslaved men said he was constantly stalked by a big black dog. 
and others began noticing floating lights at the edge of the farm in the middle of the night. The hovering lights seemed to get closer and closer, but they never reached the farm, and no one could tell where the lights were coming from. And again, this is all happening in one summer. We got wolves. We got floating lights. We got rabbit head. <laughs> rabbit heads with glowing red eyes. That's a lot for one summer. This summer flew by. I was shocked when I were at the end of September. And I'm like, holy shit, where'd my summer go? Speaking of floating lights and unidentified objects, that alien I talked about last episode, it's going under intense investigations. We're not really sure if they're real or not. It's looking like the answer is no. But yeah, we still don't have an answer. It's been two weeks and I... Still haven't seen anything that definitively said these are fake. I mean, like a lot of people are saying these are fake. Like a lot of scientists are like, this is not real. But to be sure, they're going to do some testing. So we'll see. Maybe one of the aliens is pregnant. We don't know. But we'll see. Okay. Summer, 1817. The Bell family is being attacked or not attacked but like you know stalked by odd animals or vicious creatures on their property also doors on the farm began to lock mysteriously the family reported hearing knocking on the doors and they probably said doors were being locked mysteriously because at that time nobody locked doors in 1970s nobody was locking their doors I'm shocked to even know that this farm had locks on a door in the early 1800s. Maybe they didn't and they just couldn't open the door. Which, if there were no locks on the door and they couldn't open it, that would be suspicious. That would be creepy. There was crazy knocking on the doors, but when they were to check to see if, like, who was knocking on the door, no one was there. You know, an age-old trick. An age-old gag to knock on a door and then sprint away it's like oh nobody's there i did it at work the other day it never gets old people would hear phantom chains being dragged across the floor of the house while trying to sleep the family would hear what sounded like rats gnawing on bedposts which honestly it probably was rats or mice, at least. You know, it's a farm. They then began to hear the sound of someone choking and trying to swallow, but gasping for air. I don't like that either. That's That seems menacing. People swallowing, but like you're hearing these swallowing and choking sounds, but you don't know where it's coming from. I don't like that. Because I think it... It strikes something in us, you know, when you hear that, you're like, oh my God, somebody's choking. We need to help them. So when you get that and you sit up and look around, you're like, oh my God, which one of my family members is dying and nobody's there. I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. But eventually they would hear the voice 
of a woman. John invited preachers, and they say a voice of a woman. I'm backtracking. They would hear the voice of what they think is a woman, because at this point, they haven't seen anything. They're only hearing a lot. They're not seeing a, a person. They're seeing these creatures. They're hearing a lot of sounds that sound like they would be coming from a person, but they're not seeing a person. And then they're hearing this voice from nowhere that sounds female. So John invited preachers and neighbors to try and communicate with, at this point, what they call a spirit. And when they reached her, the preachers did a good job. They did what they were hired to do. They were able to contact the spirit. And when they reached her, she revealed that her intentions, why she was at the farm, was to kill John Bell Sr. Aggressive. She's aggressive. I don't know what to tell you. Can't you just enjoy your afterlife? I mean, honestly, you really feel the need to kill? Haunt, sure. Drive crazy. If you want to drive somebody crazy because they did you wrong, I'm all for it. But to kill? That's intense. Now that's a new level. So even though John Sr. was the main target, and the spirit made it very clear that John Sr. was the target, his daughter Betsy also went through being hit, scratched, stuck with pins, and just generally beaten by the spirit. This poor woman, this poor girl, I think she was like 13 at the time. It got so bad that Betsy feared for her life So John and Lucy sent her to a neighbor's house to stay for a bit, hoping she would get better being away from the house and the spirits, spirit and creatures and so on and so forth. However, the first night after Betsy and the couple she was staying with went to bed, the front door burst open with a heavy breeze. The woman lit a candle as quickly as she could to see what had caused the door to fly open or to see who was there. But the moment the candle illuminated the room, it showed that the door was closed. That's creepy. That's terrifying. That's when you leave. You pack up all your shit right then and there and you leave. Say, you know what? Let me move to Florida. Let me move to California. Let me find, let me go back to Europe. Anything, I'm not dealing with this shit. And I would not blame them at all. But the moment they witnessed the door closed, Betsy heard the voice of the spirit again, telling her that she was foolish to believe that she could run away and that it was a mistake to involve other people. And if I was the couple living who owned that house, I'd say, Betsy, you got to go. I'm sorry, girl. We tried. You got to go. You're not bringing your shit on us. We don't even know you that well. You just moved to Tennessee. You got to go. Pack it up, girl. You got to go. So Betsy moved back home. And I don't blame the 
neighbors at all. I don't blame them at all. I hope they lived a peaceful rest of their lives. Betsy moved her ass back home. And ever since then, the spirit tended to leave Betsy alone. She would instead hold Betsy's hand and pet her cheek, which is also wild. I think there is like a medical term or explanation or a psychology-based explanation for people who abuse and then when the person can't take the abuse anymore they turn to being overly loving like love bombing them then and then you know it happens a lot in abusive marriages where they the abuser will apologize time and time again and the abusee is like well they apologized you know keeps giving them second chances it's kind of like that Betsy is getting her ass kicked and I do feel bad for her because no one should have to go through that. A spirit, especially by a spirit who she does not know. Does there's no motive at this point that they are aware of. It's there's nothing you can do to fight back. It's a ghost. So I, I feel bad for Betsy, but she moves back and the ghost, you know, coddles her. This, I, I keep saying ghost we aren't really sure what it is at this point. Some, I started the podcast saying it's a witch. We'll get to that. I'm calling it a ghost. The Bell family's calling it a spirit. Nobody fucking knows. But the spirit is now doting on Betsy. So at the time, Betsy was dating a neighbor But the threats of the spirit got in the way of their relationship. So they broke off the engagement. The engagement. Again, this child is 13. I don't know the age of the fiance, ex-fiance. But I do think it was a little more age appropriate. However, it's wild still to be engaged at 13. Betsy would go on to say that she did think that the spirit wanted her and this boy to break up. So the spirit got what she wanted. And the attacks would only escalate from here. And for three more years, the family, the enslaved people on the farm, suffered by being shoved, tripped, beaten, attacked, There was shrieking, there was screaming, and just general torment from what the neighbors began to call the Bell Witch. The Bell family always called it a spirit. They never called it a witch. The neighbors, the 600 people living in the area, called it the Bell Witch. For three years, they had to go through this. And besides the obvious reasons, I I feel bad, the most bad for the enslaved people. You gotta, you gotta get out of there. If you weren't being attacked in North Carolina, then why aren't you taking your ass back to North Carolina? You are a successful farmer. Take your money, buy a different farm somewhere else. This is wild. Three years of torment for everybody. 
even though John Sr. is the main target. Insane. Insane. So it was reading about this kind of reminded me of when I covered a lot of cases related to the Salem witch trials. I talked about what those women were being accused of doing, and it sounded a bit similar. So in the Salem witch trials, the, quote, witches would send their specters to torment neighbors, either as animals with different body parts or as themselves. Uh, There was pricking with needles. There was just a lot of, you know, similarities. So maybe the lore of witches is why the neighbors of Red River called the spirit the bell witch, but... I don't think the Bell family ever believed it was a true witch. They were just like, it's a spirit or some kind of entity in our house or on our property. News of the Bell family being haunted for three years spread across Tennessee because it was three fucking years. And it even made its way to Kentucky. So even people in Kentucky were like, what the hell is going on in Tennessee? And they were so curious by it because, you know, when it's the 1800s, when it's like the game telephone where you say one thing and 15 people later, it's a completely different phrase. I'm sure a lot of that was happening. So people were intrigued by the paranormal in Tennessee that they began to visit the small town and farmhouse to see if they could get a glimpse of this terrifying woman. Which is kind of wild. Like, there is ghost hunting now, and there is, you know, paranormal investigation, and I do shit like this all the time. But to load up your wagon and travel days or months to go see if this one farm is haunted, that's a bold move. People have always been obsessed with paranormal. Always. Always, always, always. And the more people talked to the spirit and gave her attention, the more it lashed out as if the fear that people were having, the spirit was feeding on the fear. So people would go to the farm, they would talk or try seeing it and talk about it, and then they would also get attacked. So one example was a seven-foot-tall and 300-pound man made his way to Bell Farm to essentially challenge the spirit. A man that large, I'm sure he had little to fear physically. And in the early 1800s, if I saw a man that size, I'd run away so fucking quickly. Seven feet tall. Today, seven feet tall is wild to look at. And 300 pounds. It's shocking. A man that big, shocking. I always think about this time my family and I went to a restaurant for dinner and as we were coming into the restaurant, um, a really famous Chicago Cubs baseball player was exiting the restaurant, Chris Bryant. And at the time, I didn't realize how tall Chris Bryant is. That man is six feet, five inches tall. He is 
I he it's impossible to miss him. We walk we were walking in and it was busy. It was a very popular restaurant, crazy busy. And here comes this lumbering six five man just towering over these people and everyone's like, Oh my god, it's Chris Bryant. It's like, yeah, because there's no hiding when you're that tall. He was huge. He was with his wife, but sorry to his wife. Chris Bryant is hot. I've always found him attractive. So I was like, it's okay. I'm not mad you're six feet tall and I can see you clear as day. Okay, I'm done lusting. Um, this man at the farm spent the night with the Bell family. He asked the Bell family, and they're like, sure, if you want to be haunted by the ghost, why not? But when Lucy woke in the middle of the night, the seven-foot-tall man was gone. Now, if I woke up in the middle of the night and I had a guest staying over and they were just gone, I would panic. I'd be like, did they just get up and go without saying bye? Was there a medical emergency? What happened? Did someone break in? What's happening? She checked the grounds and she found him running around as if he was being chased by something. And then he sprinted from the house, never to return again. So I don't really know his full story or what he experienced, but we can only imagine. It was the spirit. The Bell Witch. Another man, a bit more notable decided to check out the area himself, mainly because he also owned land in Red River, so it was convenient. That man was none other than Andrew Jackson. This was only a few years before he became the seventh president of the United States. As he was making his way to Red River, his carriages, or his carriage, the wheel on his carriage got stuck. Then suddenly, a voice came from nowhere saying, quote, All right, General, let the wagon move on. I'll see you again tonight. Unquote. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but if I don't know somebody and they're coming up to me and they're saying some weird shit and then they're like, I'll see you later. I be no the fuck you aren't. No, the fuck you are not seeing me later. I don't know you. We are not hanging out later. You're weird. Get away from me. It's like my favorite movie, The Strangers. Something like that happens in that movie. Again, I'm not doing that. Same with here. Andrew Jackson, you sure as hell will not see me later. After the spirit said that, the wagon's wheel was free to move. They continued on their journey. Because again, Andrew Jackson's just going back to a land that he owns that happens to be in Red River. As dusk approached, they decided to make camp and finish the trek to his property in the morning. And after setting up camp, the voice came back. She did say she was going to be back that night. One of the men tried to shoot the spirit, but his gun jammed. And before he could reload, the man was struck by an invisible force that knocked him to the ground. Seeing that interaction was enough for Andrew Jackson to turn back 
and make their make his way, make the group's way to Nashville. So see, I would have said, no, you will not see me tonight because I'm going to take my ass back to Nashville. Andrew Jackson said, I'll see you tonight. We'll talk later. And then he took his way. (laughs) Then he took his ass to Nashville. Different people, different people. I could not. And I like the, I like the paranormal, but no, no thanks. The attacks from the spirit continued on the family, and in December of 1820, John Bell Sr. became extremely ill and fell into a coma. Before the coma, John would complain about strange feelings in his mouth and throat. He was 70 years old at this point and would say that it felt as if there was a stick stuck in his throat sideways. On December 20th, 1820, John Bell Sr. was found dead in his bed. The family rushed in, and John Bell Jr. noticed that there was a dark liquid in a cup next to his father's bed. As the family gathered around John Bell Sr., they all began to hear laughing and singing coming from the spirit. She stated that she was the one to poison John Bell, She made him a drink. She killed him. Days later, during John's funeral, the laughing and singing continued. However, the moment John was buried, the hauntings stopped. The kids ended up living successful lives after that. Richard wrote his experience of the spirit and published it as a book called Our Family Trouble, the story of the Bell Witch of Tennessee. And I'm going to say, let's workshop that title. He was only six years old when the hauntings began, but let's workshop that title. Too long. I don't like super long titles. It's unnecessary. Too long. We'll, We'll figure it out. Betsy got married and moved to Mississippi. Not to the, not to her previous man. She got married to somebody else and they moved to Mississippi. Get out of that fucking place. I don't blame you, Betsy. Two of the brothers began a railroad company together. John Jr. followed in his father's footsteps and became a successful farmer. Jesse married the daughter of a wealthy reverend. Good for you, Jesse. And everything seemed great. And the kids were at peace. All it took was their father being murdered. Or killing himself. We're not very clear on that. But, you know, only took a spirit to attack their father. Everything was great. Until eight years later, when John Jr. encountered the spirit once again at his own farm. And before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. Okay, we're back. We're at John Jr.'s farm, 
Eight years later, 1828, for three days straight, the spirit came to John Jr. discussing the past and present of John Jr. And on the third day, and the past and present, the spirit does know the past of John Jr. She basically lived with them for three years. So she saw everything. She knew what John Jr. was doing in his room. She knew what John Jr. was doing out in the middle of the field when he thought nobody was looking. She knows. And now, present day, she's in his farm. She knows. On the third day, she was engulfed in light and gave a prophecy. The spirit stated that she would return in 107 years to haunt John Jr.'s most direct descendant. That is very specific. 107 years. Why? Why 107? 107 is a prime number. That's all I got for you. I don't know why else 107. That That's all I... I don't... Why? That would be me in that situation. If I was John Jr. and she stated that, being engulfed in light, I'd be like, why? Why? For what? For who? 107? Why not 50? Come back when I'm dead and you can haunt like my grandkids. 107? For what? However, when 107 years did roll around, she was nowhere to be found. Maybe she was just pulling the family's leg and was like, what would be a really funny prank before I ascend to heaven? I'm going to tell them I'm coming back and never show. That would be a really funny prank. Or maybe John Jr.'s family no longer lived in Tennessee and the Bell Witch came back and was like, where the fuck do they go? Where are they? They don't live on these farms anymore. What's going on? Like she was not prepared for the changes in society. She probably was like, what the hell is a city? What are these skyscrapers? What's happening? She was just so confused. Or maybe she had every intention in haunting the family, but some mysterious event happened that forbid her from doing so. We'll never know. Maybe she got to heaven and they were like, you are not going back to earth to haunt people. You did that. You are not allowed back. Who's to say? I don't know. But let's backtrack a little bit. Historians can't explain many things the Bell family experienced like a rabbit-headed dog, or there's a story about John Sr.'s shoes flying off his feet, or a spear being gothed in light, or a door bursting open but being closed. There's a lot we can't explain. However, what this entire story boils down to is that John Bell Sr. was poisoned to death, and everyone just accepted that this witch committed the murder or convinced John to take his own life. John was buried and became the first person to pass away from supernatural causes, but it wasn't supernatural. We can all agree that him dying was not supernatural, even though it's listed as supernatural. He very much died from poison, but the question is what poison was it and how did he get it? And was it really the ghost that murdered John Sr.? So I'm going a little backwards this week. 
Usually I talk about a murder, then the ghost that haunts people because they were murdered. Tonight we're doing things like haunting first, then murder. So, reading John Sr.'s son's book about the family's hauntings, historians have found interesting symptoms that John was having, such as trouble swallowing, tongue feeling weird, facial twitching, and the tingling would travel to other parts of his body. When they found John had slipped into a coma and then died, they mentioned the dark-colored liquid next to the bed. Dark liquid could be anything. A cup of coffee, oil, prune juice, mud. Like, dark liquid is super vague. However, the legend goes that because the spirit said she had poisoned him with the dark liquid, the family gave a cat the liquid, and the cat died. So after John Sr. died, the family was like, holy shit, the spirit killed him with this liquid. What is this liquid? How do we find out? And they were like, oh, let's give it to the cat. Why not? We don't need another cat. I think you do need another cat. If you're hearing mice nibble on your bedpost, you need more cats, not less cats. But the cat died. The doctor who examined John said John's breath. He was still in a coma at this time. And, you know, the doctor probably leaned over this almost dead person and was like, hmm, yes, yeah, smells like the liquid that's next to the thing. <laughs> I don't know if that's very scientific or very, or those are the correct medical practices. But the doctor smelled his breath and was like, yes, it smells like the, the liquid on the nightstand. So the family decided to destroy the liquid. And what better way than to throw it into the fire? And when they did that, the fire turned blue. Just for a second, but it turned blue. Historians look back at poisons and there were that were common in the early 1800s. And they narrowed it down to 10 poisons that would produce a blue flame, you know, chemistry and all that. The two most common being lead and arsenic. Now, lead is not thought to be the poison because people recover relatively quickly from lead poisoning. So they turn to arsenic, which in small doses, the body can relatively recover but the fatal arsenic dose is 0.3 grams, whereas for lead, the fatal dose is 21 grams. So obviously a hell of a lot less arsenic to kill somebody than lead. Arsenic could also explain the muscle twitching and the blue flame. Arsenic was also incredibly common in the 19th century, as I've talked about in previous episodes especially on a farm where it was used to kill rodents, like mice. And I'm just going to say it again, give up the arsenic and buy more cats. It is now thought that John Bell was a victim of a long-term arsenic poisoning being lightly dosed for three years. 
That's what historians believe these days. And I'm kind of with them. I'm kind of in agreement. So now that we figure that out, the question remains, who poisoned John Bell Sr.? And it truly could have been anyone. Maybe Lucy was being abused and had had enough. So she killed her husband. Or maybe Betsy was mad that she couldn't marry the love of her life. So she murdered her dad. Or it was common to have enslaved people poisoning to escape slavery. So that's a possibility. Or a neighbor who wanted John's land. That's a possibility. There are just so many directions to go that's kind of hard to narrow it down and we may never narrow it down now there is a person i haven't mentioned in this story that comes up often when you research the bell witch and that is kate bats kate was a neighbor who apparently got into a dispute about the purchase of an enslaved person feeling as if she was cheated out of a certain amount of money but there isn't really any proof that she was actually upset about that and the spirit did refer to herself by the name of Kate however during the attacks Kate Bats was still alive so just know that that's her story and she is somehow part of the story even though I don't really think she had anything to do with it however if you do believe that the spirit is actually a witch then maybe Kate Batts was a witch and sending her specter to torment the family. That's a possibility. But to me, the spirit is screaming more haunting than witch. But, you know, Kate Batts was alive, so she can't be the ghost. Now, when it comes to the poisoning, I'm truly torn between who it could have been. I don't necessarily blame anybody that is enslaved for poisoning people who abused them all the time or worked them without paying them, so on and so forth, and all the other horrible things enslaved people had to go through. I don't fault anybody for poisoning to get out of slavery. I'm also torn between that or the immediate family killing John Sr. I say that because if the hauntings weren't real, let's say the spirit was not real at all. And let's say Lucy was poisoning her husband. Then she would have to go along with what John was hallucinating to. Arsenic can cause headaches, tiredness, confusion, hallucinations, seizures, coma, and of course, death. So if Lucy's, again, lightly dosing her husband, and he's having hallucinations, he's confused, he's having, like, he's very tired, he has massive headaches, and he's now seeing this, like, or hearing things, or seeing this spirit type thing, or, you know, he kicked off his shoes, but he, in his mind, thinks they flew off. Lucy has to pretend that she is experiencing these things with him. 
If John is saying he's hearing a voice and seeing strange things, then maybe the family just has to go along with it and say, oh my God, what is that? You heard that too? Like there's a lot of acting going on, a lot of acting work, similar to the Salem Witch Trials, a lot of acting work going on here, if that's the case. Now, if the enslaved people poisoned John, they may have poisoned the entire family. So the entire family is experiencing hallucinations. Maybe the whole family is being poisoned and hearing things and being tired or being sick or so on and so forth. But, you know, it's a whole family. There's children, there's adults, there's, you know, different body types, different body makeup. So certain family members are getting different side effects or certain family members might be getting different dose sizes. So maybe John Sr. is just being, or his, his body is reacting to the dose more intensely than, say, Lucy, since she is 20 years younger than him. So that I'm, those two theories are if the ghost is not, is not real at all. And these are my theories. This is just shit that after reading and stuff, this is what I came to my mind. Now, if the family was really haunted by a ghost and the murderer may have used it to cover the attack. I'm going to say, I don't think a ghost killed him. And I don't think he put arsenic in a glass and drank it himself. I don't think that either. So if there is a haunting to me, whoever murdered John senior used the haunting to cover their tracks. There is a Native American burial ground nearby where the property was. So many believe that the ghost may have been someone buried on the property, like a Native American buried on the property. Also, at this time, everyone, every single person, everyone, believed in ghosts and witches and the paranormal slash supernatural. Everyone. It wasn't crazy that a family was being attacked by a ghost, demon, witch, spirit, whatever you want to call it. Everyone believed that. It was not crazy to think that. It was just terrifying and no one wanted to be next. So if you're torn between, was it a ghost was there no ghost? Who's to say? It's hard. People are biased. If there was a ghost, I do think it was still like someone in the family. And they used John Sr. and Betsy's attacks as a cover up to kill the dad. We'll never know. We'll never know. This case is over 200 years old. We'll never know. But the story doesn't even end there. The fifth great-grandson of John Bell, his name is Bob Bell, and he's currently living in Springfield, Tennessee. He was interviewed about his family, and he recounted in 2018 something that happened to him and his grandma when he was growing up. So Bob Bell gave an interview in 2018 about the past. One day, 
Bob's grandmother called him terrified, begging Bob to come to her house. He quickly made his way over and found that all the doors to her butler's pantry were open and all the dishware was on the ground. None of it was broken, even though it had fallen approximately eight feet. Bob also explained hearing strange noises like heavy footsteps pounding down the hall of his grandmother's house. He thought someone had broken in, so he grabbed a baseball bat, but when he checked, no one was there. Paranormal events continued like that until Bob found a Bible on his grandmother's bookshelf in the basement. The date of the Bible was 1820, which was the year John Bell Sr. was murdered and the hauntings stopped. Bob immediately removed the Bible from his grandmother's house, and the moment he did that, the strange events stopped happening. Wild. Wild. And you know what that tells me? If you have a Bible in your house right now, get rid of it. Toss in the garbage. Burn it. I don't care what you do. Get rid of that Bible in your house. You don't need it. If you haven't read it already, you're not going to read it. Get rid of it. You don't need it. Not that I'm endorsing burning books. Don't burn books. Um, Just don't keep religious books in your house. Okay, moving on. If you're interested in seeing a play based on these events, Adams, Tennessee hosts a production every year. And they change up the story every so slightly, so it's different every year. So you can make it an annual trip to Adams, Tennessee. It's kind of like the Clue movie where there's like alternate endings, so you don't know who the murderer is. At least that's my understanding. But Or go watch The Blair Witch Project, Bell Witch Haunting, An American Haunting, Bell Witch the Movie, The Bell Witch Legend, the Bell Witch Haunting, The Mark of the Bell Witch, etc. Go watch one of those. <laughs> All of those sound like sequels. Like, I don't know. The, the sequels to the Leprechaun movies are really silly. And honestly, so are the Fast and the Furious movies. Like, if it was applied to Bell Witch, it'd be the Bell Witch, Two Bell, Two Witch, The Bell Witch, Tokyo Drift. Bell Witch, Bell 5, Bell Witch 6, Witch 7, The Fate of the Witch, Bell Witch Presents John and Betsy, BW9, Bell X. Let's get a whole series of the Bell Witch. The Blair Witch Project, 2 Blair, 2 Witch. (laughs) Okay, I'm done. Uh, Yeah, go watch those movies to see. I mean, I think one of those is a documentary about you know, the family, the rest are inspired by the Bell Witch, but I'm going to say something controversial yet true. The Blair Witch Project is not as good as the remake Blair Witch. I said it, I said it, I like the remake more than I like the original. Sue me. But before you do that, thank you all so much for joining me. I hope you all enjoyed this case. Go follow Haunted Hometowns on Instagram and Twitter for photos related to each episode. 
guest info and upcoming news. Next episode drops on Friday the 13th, so you know damn well that's going to be a great episode, and I am going to have a fun, exciting, amazing guest, so tune in for that. You can find me at blamberthack on Instagram. Send me your paranormal experiences to hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from hearing phantom airplanes taking off from your aircraft carrier to waking up with all of your eyelashes gone. Let me know. And I'll meet you all back here in a couple weeks for the Friday the 13th episode. Because everyone loves a ghost story. The music is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from BuzzFeed, Wikipedia, Real History, the Tennessean article by Katie Nixon, the Pulse article by Jason Tinney, and Tennessee State Library and Archives. <laughs>